Okay, well, let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Actually, I'm going to put this away and put this So let's review what happened last week in Mark, where we were. The issue is that the religious authorities, the Jewish religious authorities, are trying to get rid of Jesus, and one of their means is to discredit him by asking him questions that they hope he can't answer, which is silly considering who Jesus is, the one who designed everything that there is, knows everything. So we're, we're in chapter 12 of Mark. How many chapters are in Mark? 15 and a half. <laughs> 15 and a half. Okay, we'll get to that eventually. <laughs> and so just so you know, how many chapters are in John? 22. And how many does he spend on the last week of Jesus' life on earth? Almost all of it. Pardon? Most of it. Well, full half of it. Yeah, 12. So with Mark, we're already at chapter 12, so we're three quarters of the way through, and now we are getting to the last, we are in the last week in chapter 12. So. We're going to be seeing closure on a lot of things. So, so let, let's, um, we've already begun. Let's pray. Father, I ask that what we think about and read and hear this morning be um, worthy of who you are, of the greatness of truth and power that you put into your word and in all that you say. Give us real sensitivity this morning to, to your explicit spoken words in Jesus. Amen. So we're starting at verse 28. Chapter 12, what has just happened, as we were talking about, uh, the Sadducees was one of the groups that didn't like Jesus because they were very much the ruling party. Most of them were um, very aligned with, with the Roman government, which 
the rest of the nation really disliked, but they found it expedient to uh, cooperate and profit from being uh, complicit with the Roman government. And they, oddly enough, though they were Israeli and whatever else you want, and religious, they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in life after death. How very bizarre. Because that really is innate in all of us. Humans just know that there's more to life than this life. And you have to work really hard and twist your brain around really deliberately to, to get away from that. And in our culture here, uh, we kicked God out of our public school system. Uh, surprised me to find out the first law against reading, uh, teaching the Bible in public school was back in the 60s. We, I remember clearly the, in 73 when, when um, well, I guess I don't remember too clearly. I've forgotten her name right now. Uh, a lady sued in the Supreme Court because her son was subjected to Bible reading and prayer in school, which is what we did when I was... I, when I was in elementary school, we had prayer, we read the Bible every morning. Madeline O'Hara, that's the gal. Thank you. Who's, was that you or that came from the... Okay. So, so I, I am starting to lose it, so just so you know. Don't be surprised. Um, sorry, that wasn't necessary. So our culture has... And of course, all of that was the result of the uh, previous culture, you know, ever since Darwinianism uh, was invented in the early 1800s. Um, popular culture bought into that, and that was our excuse for saying that Genesis isn't true, so we don't really need to believe any of the Bible. Of course, Darwinianism has been disproved. It is utterly, completely, totally unscientific. It's anti-scientific because we know that things do not get better by accident. And they certainly do not become more complex by trial and error. Uh, I know all about trial and error because that's mostly how, how I design things. And there's a lot more uh, garbage than product left from trial and error, I can tell you. Anyway, uh, our culture has been uh, migrating against the idea of God, of, of uh, the trustworthiness of the Bible. And that's, that's done in stages and in, in different disciplines at different rates. So the, you know, the, that's another study. We don't need to go into that. But we've been teaching in our public schools now for generations that we are accidents of nature, that we are no different than other 
critters and we have no more value and there's nothing follows. Um, all of those things we innately know are wrong, but yet if we just keep telling ourselves something often enough, we believe it. And we certainly have become a culture of that. And it's just so astonishing to me that we can have all these terrible stories on the news and nobody says, well, what do you expect? That's what you've been teaching people to do for years, all their lives, that they're just animals and, and behaving like animals is, is okay. You can't say that you have no basis for saying that something's wrong, but we're just a messed up, messed up culture. Well, Rome was pretty much similar to that at that time. There were a lot of corrupt things going on, but the Jewish nation still had the Bible, had the Old Testament, and they taught, they taught it and they believed it. Even the Sadducees, if I get back to my original point, the Sadducees kind of did the same thing that most religious people do today. They accept what they want and disregard the rest. And they believed that only the Pentateuch was authoritative. So when they, so when they asked Jesus about this guy and marriage and about taxes, they were, they still claimed to stand on the Pentateuch, and yet Jesus answered their question about about marriage and about resurrection. He, answered them from the Pentateuch. Do you remember what he used from that? In the beginning, God gave them in, in marriage on man and woman. Yes, so marriage was instituted by God in the original design, and but his response was about, you know, he switched because they they didn't ask him about life after death, but Jesus told them about life after death. What did he say? In heaven, the new men or people are neither given. Do they marry or neither given in marriage? <laughs> okay, like the but, angels and that they're... Okay, you're still stuck on marriage. After he answered that question, he said... Concerning we the need dead. To, yeah, concerning the dead, yes. Concerning the dead, what did he say? Um, went back to the burning bush. Went to the burning bush and said that I am. God said, I am the God of the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Which is very, very cool. We have to remember that. I just really started wasting not waste, but take so much time on that. But it's really important for us here to remember that our dead are not dead. And the church being not a part of this world, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. So the church still has the 12 apostles in it. They are as live, liver now than they were, even though then, even though they don't have their bodies at this time, but they are still very much alive. And his church is not just the 
living here on earth, but all the people who have put their trust in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And that doesn't go away when we die. Okay, let's go to verse 28. And who do we meet there? Somebody want to read verse 28 for me? One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what is the commandment? What commandment is the foremost of all? Okay, so who, who's the subject? Who's the primary, who's the person where we meet here? Scribe. The scribe, which is another word of, another way of? Pharisee. Okay, we know that from Matthew. He's not a Sadducee. He is a Pharisee. He's a scribe. And another way of saying that he's a lawyer or a teacher of the law, meaning the Old Testament, meaning the, yes, the Pentateuch and the prophets. So he's a student of that and a teacher of that. And so, what do we see that's different about this guy? He's talking to Jesus. <laughs> well, but how is he talking? Respectfully. Well, yeah, see, he has listened to what Jesus answered the Sadducees. You know, in one part, he's glad because he's a Pharisee, not a Sadducee. But he also listened and heard what Jesus said. And he understood that he had answered them well. Noticing, sorry, I've got the NIV here today because I missed my other one. But he noticed that Jesus had given a good, intelligent, irrefutable response. And so that piqued his interest, and so he took his opportunity to ask him something that was a common debate question for the religious people. Um, what's, what's the greatest command? Which one is most important? So he, he had, it sort of sounds like he isn't real familiar with Jesus, like this might have been one of his first personal uh, encountering to Jesus. And so he wanted to ask him the most important thing he could think of, and that was, which commandment is the, the greatest? So what motivates that kind of a question? Genuine desire to do what God wants. Yeah, he sounds like this, this is important. And of course, a lot of people like to have arguments just for the sake of argument. But this guy actually sounds like he was seriously interested. So what was Jesus's answer? Am I 
am I being out of place for not having, for not reading all this to you? I assume people know what's in here already. Am I getting ahead of myself? You are back to the Shema. Which is? To your own states. For hero Israel, where our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love him. Okay, that was Jesus' answer. But that wasn't all of his answer. What else did he say? Second is that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is Jesus' answer. The, the Pharisees had how many rules on the books? Over 600. Yeah, over 600 that they picked out from the Pentateuch and categorized them, and that's part of what this is. So when you have that many, you do need to know, you know which one is more important. Um, because everything is related to everything. So all these rules are related to other principles and rules. So it is very helpful to know what is most important. So the Shema is the section of Moses' writings that a faithful Jew will, will repeat, from memory of course, twice a day. And it's, it's quite a, uh, a long section. We, we round it off to... Um, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, but they also had included some other sections added to that to, to fill it out. But here Jesus, that's directly where Jesus went to, so that's a good thing. So the, the nation of Israel has a good biblical God's word foundation, right? They knew what it said. They knew what it said. They liked the law, but didn't like the fact that their forefathers had killed all the prophets. Yeah, that is, is. Anyway, these are all lessons for us, and I won't touch into those completely. But yes, they had a good foundation. They knew what was most important. Uh, the most important thing is for you to hear and by implication know that the Lord our God is one. And that word one includes the idea, completely includes the idea is that he is unique. There is only one of these. And as he says in Isaiah, is there another God like me? I know of none. Right. So God is unique, and he is one. And what's the important part of knowing that? There's no other God. Right? It's only him. And we're not. Pardon? We're not him. <laughs> yes, that's right. Singular. We, we aren't and we ain't gonna be. 
<laughs> yes. So our response to knowing that is what? Worship them. Okay. In the words of the Shema, what are we to do? Love. Love. So the creator of the universe, bigger than we than our brains will ever be able to comprehend, even the part that exists, were to love that person. It seems like there is a very big gap between we and he. So how does that happen? How can that happen? It happens because Not only is he big, he is everyone. Not only is he big, he is personal. personal. Thank you. That's the that's the that's the whole thing. He is infinite and he is personal. That is so utterly important to our theology. We can never, never miss that, lose sight of it, stop thinking about it, because it's the only way we can relate to it. There's no way we can re relate to making galaxies and this, you know, creating light that goes so fast and gravity that we still don't even know what it is. Uh, we ha it has to be personal because we are made in his image, so we are we can call ourselves personal too, although we can act terribly impersonal at times. That sounded like the voice of experience there. <laughs> We've all had that experience way too many times. Yes, Jim. It took me a while to realize that. I used to say things like, well, that's not that big a deal. It's not worth bothering God with. You know, I'm not going to pray about that. I'm not going to worry about that. Friend, friend of Help me to understand God is a personal God. He cares about every little thing in our life and it doesn't matter if it's just a little cut on your finger. You can you can take that to God in prayer. You know, he he hears it. Now I don't I don't do that. I mean <laughs> but the point is he cares about every little thing in our life and we can take that to him and pray. There's not anything insignificant that he won't listen to us. He's a personal God who So it really is great that he is big, too, because being infinite, he knows more about ourselves than we will ever know about ourselves. And he cares. In fact, I think there's a verse that says something like that. One of my favorite verses we shared several times in this class. Go back to Isaiah, Isaiah 57 15. It says, For thus says the high and exalted one, talk about how big he is, who lives forever, whose name is holy. Again, he's different, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. I dwell in a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So in that one verse, as we had 57, 15, you see both his 
transcendence and his infancy. He is big and glorious in God, and yet he dwells with the lowly, the contrite and lowly. He made himself become lowly, which is my world. Great. So remind us of that verse at the end, because I'll probably forget, because that fits right in. That's, that's the period at the end of this section, verse 44, someone that understood that. Okay. So this loving God, he loves us, he knows all about us, he was willing to give his son's life not only living in a stinky, messy place that this is, but to die for us. He loves us so personally, too. So yes, he does care about this scratch. He knows, and I've got lots of those, and I pretty much don't think about them. He thinks about them more, because those scratches are sometimes the things that kill people. Um, we think we know a lot about infections, but in fact, uh, we have a lot yet to learn. All of the things that happen to us are important, and God knows all about them. All of the things that happen to us are important, and we are clueless most of the time. But he cares for us. So this love for God should be reflective of his love for us. It needs to be, what are the words that Jesus used in his answer? How are we supposed to love him? Our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. You missed a word. And what is? All. All. <laughs> 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 and do we do that no. most of the time? No. Some of the time? <laughs> Any of the time? But anyway, that's, that's what he deserves, and we can understand that, right? That's not, that's, that's not irrational. That's only reasonable. And if we had a a outside of ourselves view of our capacities to do anything, we would probably be much more anxious to love him. In fact, you know, one of the uh, most important attitudes of, what's the word I'm trying to think of, um, virtue, is humility. And it's easy to be humble when you know who God is, where he is, what he's, some of the things he's doing, and what we can do about it. There just isn't anything we can do about much at all. Our world of, of um, being able, the, this, the, yeah, the size of the world that we can affect is really, really, really little. There's just, we just don't have much capacity for doing much. So obedience, 
humble obedience is really a great virtue because it is our God who works in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. So we need to know what his pleasure is. We need to work on that. So we are to love God in a, with a uh, love that is personal and utterly comprehensive. If I use the word utterly too much, somebody let me know. I like that word. Totally, totally wholehearted. And what else is left on this short list? You may say it out loud. To love our neighbor. Yes. Yes, to love our neighbor. But who is my neighbor? You're in the wrong book for that. <laughs> well, good. I do want us to understand that. So what is our neighbor? Um, what is the word, another word we can use for our neighbor? People. <laughs> Everybody we can see, yes. Our fellow man. Anybody that we're within reach of or sight of. And that's the most interesting, the uh, Bible knowledge commentary there said it in a very good way. Our natural self-love is to be equally directed to our fellow man. To love our neighbor as we love ourselves. That's pretty <coughs> tall order there because I, yeah, we spend the rest of the time talking about that. You just think about that. But that's this, that's what the right thing to do is. In the, um, I just happened to know Ephesians 5.29 talking about man should love his wife as he loves himself um, because every man nourishes and cherishes his own body and that's how he's supposed to love his wife but here we're also told we're to love our neighbor as ourselves so that those two words make up really challenging to nourish and cherish our neighbor. Whoa. Okay. So these two commands are the foundation of all that God wants us to be doing. If, if, we, could, if we could do that perfectly, we wouldn't be breaking any other laws. Isn't that amazing? Okay, well, it's good that God's mercy and grace is really broad and deep, isn't it? Because we just don't measure up really well. I think it's amazing that we can boil everything down to two laws, and that's 
<laughs> really, really stinking difficult for us. Yeah, it doesn't help much, does it? It doesn't help at all. Yeah. It's only two you need to worry about. Okay, any other comments on up to this point? So would someone please read verses 32 and 33 for us? Remember this was Jesus' answer to a question. So now we get to... And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and all of the, and with all the understanding and with all the strength. And to love one's neighbor as for himself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Okay, what do we... What do you notice here about this response of, of the, the lawyer? Yes, oh, pardon? He heard him. Very good. That was the first thing I thought of. He actually heard what Jesus said. You were going to say? I was going to say, I think it was interesting that the Pharisee had kind of realized that the word offerings and the sacrifices weren't enough. In fact, he made it made those insignificant. Didn't he? That's yes, that's yes, that's what stands out to us about this guy. He really is listening to what Jesus said, he understood what he said, and he could most importantly he could restate it in his own words with different words. And one of the things I learned a long time ago, when a person can't say something in different words, but they can only tell you something in a learned phrase, means they don't know what they're talking about. They just memorize something, and there's no real, you can't depend on them understanding what they were saying. Because if you understand something, the first thing you want to do is you want to put it into your own words. Because we have to be careful when we do that, because most of us are not all that great with English, but, uh, <laughs> You should be able to restate something in different words if you know what we mean, if you know what something means, because how many words are there in our language? And how many synonyms are in our language? You should be able, if you have understanding, you should be able to restate it. And he said all three times. Yeah. <laughs> 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 hey, we're hearing too now. This is good. <laughs> well, he not only he agreed with Jesus. He, he not only said that he was right, he agreed with him. Very significant. And and Jesus saw that too, didn't he? Jesus he, was listening. He knew the law because God had stated that he would rather have people who love him and who are loving their neighbors rather than burnt sacrifices. And we need a lot. And we know that too, right? Yep. 
I haven't done many bird sacrifices, so <laughs> I don't think steak counts. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a verse somewhere that says, um, okay, I lost my thought there, forgive me. So, especially, this is an especially remarkable statement coming from a religious professional, because our nature, as we will see just down the page here a little bit, is for us to always want to make things about ourselves and to make things easy for ourselves. And we know that loving God is not easy. And it's not supposed to be about us. So Jesus' response was also positive. And he told him that he, uh, Jesus saw that he'd answered wisely. He said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Is there anything somebody wants to say about that phrase? Just that he, he understood and agreed with Jesus. The next thing was to have faith and trust in Jesus. Okay, well, I was being a little oblique there. Um, so what's one of Mark's um, intention in writing this is to show suffering and the kingdom of God kingdom of God so he he put that in there Jesus said not far from the kingdom of God was Jesus first words you're not far from the kingdom well no I meant Back at the beginning, was Jesus, one of the first things Jesus said when he became public was, Thank you. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And there's, there's a guy that is not far from the kingdom of God. Did he say that of anyone else? Like Peter or James or John? <laughs> He had other words for them. So anyway, that's this is a remarkable thing, and, um, and Mark is the only one that had that has recorded this guy's response to Jesus. So that's very encouraging for us. The other thing that that guy's response is helpful to us, because as you said, we did we don't you know, we don't count our burnt offerings. We probably have never killed anything as an offering to God and burned it and gave it to somebody else. Anyway, that's just out of our our life because Jesus was the final sacrifice, right? So we, we don't do those kinds of sacrifices, but we can also understand that all of those requirements of God's law to the Israelis and to mankind in general 
Uh, we have to trust that Jesus fulfills those for us. He gives us his righteousness because we just don't have any of our own. Because we just don't, we just aren't capable of being perfect in any way. So loving God and loving our neighbor is what we can focus on. Right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, the next section is the end of 34. Would somebody like to read that? And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions? Yeah. How about that? So this is how Mark ends uh, Jesus' interaction with the public. He, he, um, he doesn't record any more of the verbal fighting and stuff between Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay, so then the next section here is 35 through 40. I'm sorry, that's wrong. 35 through 37. And Jesus now is asking a question. Now he's talking to his disciples, to the followers around him. And they, he, he asked, what is the question? Somebody read that for us, please. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that Jesus, the, or, <laughs> how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David called, himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. So would somebody like to comment on that? What is, what is he talking about? Just a few chapters back, we met a guy named Bartimaeus. What did he say? Son of David. Jesus, son of David. So what does that mean? It's a messianic prophecy. Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the descendant of David. And we, we care about that because why? Or they care about that. They care about it. Well, we care about it too. As <laughs> <laughs> God promised them about what you did. Descendant of David. And what do we call that? Cain prophecy. <laughs> yes, it's a covenant, right? Right? The Davidic covenant. That's part of that, that he would always have it. So the nation of Israel was looking for a descendant to come be king of the Jews. Uh, were they aware of that at the time? Yes. 
like they've already done it, right? They've yes. already acknowledged him just days before that he, they lauded him as king, their coming king. So why is Jesus asking this question? Well, there was a debate at the time how Christ could be God, the coming Messiah could be God, when he was a descendant of David. So I mean, they couldn't grasp the fact that, that Jesus could be the Christ if he was a descendant of David. And, and Jesus is showing them that the Christ that David said called well, now I'm confused, but anyway, he was showing, he's trying to show that he existed before David and after. Yeah, well, the, yes, the, the legal religious people, well, they emphasize that, in fact, everybody, that, because that's, that's, I mean, that's a stretch. We've never seen an incarnation before, so that's a hard thing to grasp. It's just one of those things that we need to pay attention to things we don't understand in the Bible. Uh, and that was one that was obvious because there are a lot of uh, descriptions of the coming, what, the word Christ, the word Messiah is the promised one, the coming one, and, and there are a lot of, a lot of uh, references a whole list of them, and unfortunately I talked too slow, so I didn't have time to even look at any of them, but there are many that say that he's from the, the coming one, it will be the son of David. And, and Bartimaeus you know, voiced that immediately, and of course they weren't necessarily convinced of that, but they were there for a few minutes. But having him also be God is a whole different thing completely because here's a man standing before you, a fallen man, a, a looked like a fallen man who gets tired, who gets hungry. How can he be God? And that was Jesus's question to them. He's trying to at least bring this up on the table for them so that they are not as surprised when he is resurrected here in a couple of days. So he is preparing them for that. But what I was trying to say is they were debating whether the Messiah would be God or a man. And that was the debate. Yes, well that yeah, and as long as you as long as you ask the wrong question, you're never gonna come up with the right answer, right? <laughs> so let's be careful of that in our Okay. So I did it. I lost. I didn't end up with my last notes. Actually, I forgot to bring them off. The, pull them off the printer. But we do need to wrap it up here. And on sadly, because th this section is very, very important. I would please encourage you to read through this every day for the following week, because I've been reading it and thinking it and dreaming it for the last month. It's full of really important things. It's another illustration of the Markian sandwiches where 
different subjects are entered. So the last section here about the widow's offering is going back to the, the greatest commandment because here she is demonstrating what God is asking us to do, to love God with all your heart. So, uh, so this, this section is Jesus is in the temple court. He's not right in the temple, but in the court, and they had a, a bunch of um, structures where people put in their their offerings, their physical monetary offerings. It wasn't just one offering box. But the one commentary said there was 13 of them there. But it was in the temple court. Remember, this is at the Passover week, so there's the Jerusalem is crowded with people from all over the place, and they come if they're devoted they come and give, make their offerings and give their donations. And that's what Jesus was watching from across the way and his teachers and uh, his disciples. And they were watching the crowd putting in the money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. And then a widow and they used the word poor because Jesus said she put in everything that she had to live on. And what she had to live on was extremely small. It wouldn't buy one meal. It was um, estimated to be about 1 64th of a day's wages. So you wouldn't get very far with that. And so she put in two very small copper coins worth only the fraction of a cent. And Mark put that in there because he's talking to Romans. They didn't know the Jewish monetary system, likely. So he said it's just less than a cent, which they would understand. And then Jesus calling calling this act to the attention of his disciples there. He said, that lady put more in than everybody else. Because everybody else was giving out of their surplus. It, it isn't going to affect their life one little bit. And here, this woman put in the last thing she had to live on. So she was placing herself completely into God's care. It's like uh, Galatians Paul was talking about there in, in 2 Corinthians, um, where he says they were giving out of their their poverty. Yep, giving for others. Macedonians? Macedonians, not Galatians. Different problems. Yes. So this is what we are challenged with. They gave, they all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything. 
everything she had to live on. So back in the beginning of this section, we're talking about, about loving God with all. And here she literally did put all in that she had to live on. So from that moment on, she was totally dependent on God. Totally dependent. Well, it is time to stop, and I'm sorry, I was not prepared well enough, so I encourage you to read through that again. There are quite a few uh, contrasts in this section. The, uh, I totally skipped over the, the part of the, the typical lawyers, the typical scribes who walked around in fine clothing and loved respectful greetings in the marketplace and always took the seats up front so everybody could see how important they were. And if you invited them to the party, they always wanted to sit beside rich people. Um, but yet, they, they didn't live that way. Uh, those people did not have a prescribed uh, position in, in the Jewish community. That was one that was Created and they did not have a, it wasn't a real job, they just did it and they were devoted to God doing it, but they had to depend on other people to support them because it wasn't a paid position in, in, the, in the system. And so they lived on donations and of course, who are the most susceptible to give more than they should? In our, even in our culture today. Who do the scammers hit up first? Old people and, and women are most particularly targeted. And that's what these guys did. They were willing to take money from people that they should not be taking money from because it was important for them to have their fancy clothes and to be able to be out there in the market out there in the in the city, standing on street corners, making long prayers so that people could see them. So they can see how holy they are, right? Yes, <laughs> I guess. Anyway, let's pay attention to what the Bible says uh, from Genesis to Revelation. It is all in there, and if we don't understand it, that's our problem, not God's problem. It's not something we should ignore. Thanks for paying attention.